This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Well, it's finally here. 2019 is nearly over, and that means the end of the decade. As we are about to roar into the 20s, it will be prudent to look back at the decade that was. There have been a ton of great films released in the last 10 years, and it would be silly not to honor them. Over the course of the next two episodes, we are going to count down the 50 best films of the 2010s. This is ContraZoom's biggest project ever, and we hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I have putting it all together. It started last year, around this time when I began putting together my best of the 2018 list, and remember that next year will be a special one. I hatched a plan to do something more meaningful. I toyed with the idea of how to put together such a big project, and whom I want to participate. The list you're about to hear is one done by a committee, and it reflects a more concise list of what was great. Over the course of the next two shows, I'll be sharing some fun facts about the list, looking at some of the numbers of the 26 of the 50 films that made the cut were nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, with four of them winning the top prize. As a whole, the 50 films garnered 225 nominations and 76 wins, which is staggering to think about. In fact, only five films on the list didn't receive a single Oscar nomination, two of which were because they only came out this year and seemed destined to make the cut at the Oscars. This was the decade of emerging filmmakers taking center stage, allowing for fresh perspectives and new takes on old genres to grip us. I am so excited to share this list with you that we have to get started. Fittingly, the list starts off with Inside Job, a documentary from 2010. Throughout these two episodes, I have invited just about every friend of the show on to talk about movies that appeared on their ballots, for two reasons. First, so you don't have to sit through just me blabbering on, but also because the people you'll hear from got these movies on the list and can speak to the power of the films in ways that I might not be able to express for all 50. So first up, we have Colin Mercer, who you heard on the last episode as I interviewed him for his new sketch comedy series, Game Time. Hey, my name is Colin Mercer, and I'm going to be talking about the 50th best film of the decade. That film is Inside Job, which is a documentary from 2010 that examines the 2008 financial crisis. The reason that I love and respect Inside Job so much is that it takes this incredibly difficult concept such as financial deregulation and it funnels it through a very human lens. Throughout the documentary, you're exposed to the perpetrators of the largest experiment in financial deregulation in history and how they benefited, you know, largely financially, and how people on the other side of the spectrum, the other tens of millions of people all around the world who lost their jobs, their homes, their savings, were victims of such an extreme experiment, which was largely fueled by greed. The documentary is narrated by Matt Damon, who does a really good job grounding the piece, and I'd recommend it to anyone, as it's sure to make your blood boil and help you understand some very obtuse concepts about the globalized world we live in. Coming in at number 49 is Shoplifters from 2018, directed by Hirokazu Koreeda. 
This film is going to be introduced by Stephanie Pryor, who you will recognize from appearing on numerous Make Remake episodes and has just been a general friend of the show for a long time. Stephanie also helped create the graphics for the show and included creating two very special graphics for this best of the decade list. Shoplifters is a phenomenal film, one that I didn't know very much about before going into, uh, but of course being nominated for an Oscar uh, in the best foreign film category, I was all game since that is one of my favorite categories when watching the Oscar films. Um, This is a quiet film with breathtaking thoughtful scenes. It showcases some otherwise mundane moments and events in life in just such a captivating way. One scene in particular where this dysfunctional little family is enjoying a fireworks show and all we can hear is the fireworks in the background but we see their faces being lit up by the lights of the fireworks. It's just something that really resonated and stuck with me. Uh, I think that each character in this film is fully developed and we get to see just a glimpse of each one before their whole world is, is kind of jumbled up. And it's one that I very much recommend to anyone who has struggled with uh, family and what it means to be in a family, but also struggled with anything in life, whether it be poverty or life events. Uh, It's just such a great, beautiful film that really touched me. Coming in at 48 is Paddington 2 from 2017, directed by Paul King. Now we're going to hear from Callum McNabb, the host of Scare Traducing, who you heard on our Halloween recommendations episode, and has become a good friend of the show. Take it away, Callum. Hi there. My name's Callum McNabb. I am a co-host of a horror movie podcast called Scare Traducing, in which we cover horror franchises. But today I'm here to talk about my favourite movies of the last 10 years, the first of which is Paddington 2. So over the last 10 years, Pixar has ended its classic Toy Story franchise perfectly twice with entries 3 and 4, as well as offering up some heartbreaking classics such as Inside Out and Coco, not to even mention Disney taking the universe by storm with the animated behemoth Frozen. Yet despite all of this, the greatest family film of the previous decade must go to Paddington 2. It's funny for all ages, it's emotional without being soppy, there are career best performances from the likes of Hugh Grant and Brendan Gleeson. I'm serious. This movie has it all. It's so good that if director Paul King cannot return to finish his Paddington trilogy, then Paddington 3 shouldn't happen. It's Paul King's trilogy or it doesn't happen. It's a masterpiece. Coming in at number 47 is I, Tanya from 2017, directed by Craig Gillespie. And speaking about this movie is Gemma Mastrioni. Hi, my name is Gemma, and I'm the editor and owner of thesoundtrack.ca, which is a music and lifestyle blog based in Toronto. So I'm going to talk about why I, Tanya was one of my favorite movies of the decade. So first things first, I went to watching this movie with no prior knowledge um, about the situation. I knew who Tanya Harding was, but I didn't know any of the crazy details, and boy was I in for a surprise. Um, This movie was incredibly action-packed. As soon as you thought it was going to slow down and become wholesome, it did not at all. Um, It had me at the edge of my seat, and I really love a film that can do that. There wasn't one point where I was like, can this move along? Um, I also liked how at the end of the movie, 
they showed actual footage of the moments in time along with photographs and it just kind of showed how true the actors were to their characters along with cinematography wardrobe and all that jazz um so overall this movie just really sort of hit all the spots for me and i absolutely loved it coming in at number 46 is the master directed by paul thomas anderson Paul Thomas Anderson created arguably one of the single most important films in American history with There Will Be Blood in 2007. It sadly ran up against No Country for Old Men in the same year, meaning it would always be in its shadow. PTA then took five years off before coming back with a much more under-the-radar film in The Master. This film was actually my number one ranked film for the decade, and I was very disappointed that not a single other person included it in their ballots, meaning it only squeaked in here. The film was supposed to be a, an expose and biographical retelling of L. Ron Hubbard and the creation of Scientology, but much like his other films, it was that, but also it wasn't. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the Hubbard stand-in Lancaster Dodd, who turns in, in my opinion, the best performance of his career that was cut far too short. Dodd is a cult master in all the big scary ways we think of, but he also has the ability to get to the heart of someone's deepest fears and desires. When he meets Joaquin Phoenix's Freddie Quell, who is someone that is aimless and wanting direction, Quell falls heavily under Dodd's spell. This movie reminded me so much of being in acting school. The repetitive dialogue spoken back and forth, character breakdowns, and finding how you can use your memories for your benefit. This movie eats at your soul as you realize how even the strongest mind can fall victim to someone who appears to listen and give a damn about you. Coming in at number 45 is Coco from 2017, directed by Lee Unkridge and Adrian Molina. This is being introduced by Stephanie Pryor. Coco, I think, was such a beautiful and tactful use of cultural storytelling that brought a breath of fresh air to the Pixar category. I think they showed the importance of music and, and the role it plays in Mexican traditions, and it really grounded and connected this film all together. Apart from that, it was just an impressive feat of animation. The vivid use of color and the vibrancy of the fluorescent lit afterlife just transports you into this mu magical and whimsical world that is something unseen from all Pixar and I think animated films together. It's such a touching story about families and traditions and what it takes to have the courage to be yourself while still finding that level of acceptance you want from your family. So I'm so happy that it has made this list. Coming in at number 44 is Lady Bird from 2017, directed by Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig has someone that has always been kind of funny, but indulges in a bit too much awkward dramedy for me, a type of performance I don't normally have the stomach for. I missed her co-directorial debut Nights and Weekends back in 2008, but when she took the reins fully by writing and directing Lady Bird, I was hooked. While I was never a teenage girl, this film is so relatable to the internal struggle all young people go through as they try to define themselves and not just be smaller versions of the generation that brought them into the world. I remember back in high school having conversations with my female friends, hearing them have epic blowouts with their mothers over things that don't even matter anymore. But when asked what they were going to do on the weekend, they talked about spending time shopping with their mother and how excited they were. 
It left me confused at times, but primed me for one of the complicated relationships that Lady Bird and her mother have in this film. Despite Saoirse Ronan only being 23 at the time that this came out, she had already been a star for a full decade as Atonement came out in 2007. She was fully in command of the screen and went toe-to-toe with a whole host of actors giving it their all, including Laurie Metcalf as her mother, who along with Ronan was nominated for Oscars for their performances, Tracy Letts as her father, Timothy Chalamet and Lucas Hedges as two rival love interests, and Beanie Feldstein as her best friend. The film also got Oscar nominations for Gerwig's writing and directing, making her only the fifth woman to ever be representative in the Best Director category. She just might become the first female two-time nominee this year, with Lil Women coming out soon. Coming in at number 43 is Lion from 2016, directed by Garth Davis. This is being introduced by Gemma Mastriani. So I'm going to talk about Lion. I saw this one at TIFF, um, sort of similar to the I, Tanya situation. I went in with no prior knowledge to this story, and it was really, really beautifully told. Um, I really liked the progression of the story. I like how you see him in his childhood. I like the diversity of the story, seeing different cultures and such. Um, but yeah, I think Dev Patel is just an excellent actor. Um, it was just really, really beautifully told and really nice progression, beautiful cinematography. Um, and you can tell that a lot of time was put into this film. Coming in at number 42 is Dallas Buyers Club from 2013, directed by Jean-Marc Vallier. This is being introduced by actor Sebastian Hines. Hi, my name is Sebastian Heinz, and the first great movie that I'm going to talk about is Dallas Buyers Club. This is one of those featured career-making roles for McConaughey. He's middle-aged, he's experienced, doesn't really care how he looks on screen. He hasn't gotten an Oscar yet, and so he's ready to bear it all in a really death-defying performance. I love how he's grittier, he's unlikable, this is a not pretty McConaughey, something we're not used to. And you can really tell he's all in when the, the movie opens up on that grimy scene where he's having unprotected sex with the rodeo girls, and you know this is going to go from bad to worse. Coming in at number 41 is Thor Ragnarok from 2017, directed by Taika Waititi. This is being introduced by Cade from The Basement Binge. Hello everyone, my name is Cade and I am one of three hosts of the podcast called The Basement Binge. The first movie I want to talk about for the decade is Thor Ragnarok, coming at number 41. And the reason why I love this movie is because Thor, of all Marvel characters, is my all-time favorite. He is, in all honesty, my childhood hero. He taught me how to be a good man, taught me how to fight for what's good and be the best comic book hero in of all time in my opinion and since this is his third movie Thor this is his third movie it really just capped his story off in the best way possible to where I can watch this movie time and time again for the rest of my life after receiving 15 ballots ranging from guests on this podcast people who host their own film-based podcasts, and even people in the industry, a total of 163 films were eventually submitted. 
asked people to provide a list of at least 10, but up to 25 movies, and assigned a weighted score to their ballots to help flesh out the list. You have some people like myself, who in preparation for the show made a list consisting of 155 movies, and that doesn't include some 2019 films that are sure to have made the cut by now. Two other voters, Colin Mercer and Dasha Paragadova, submitted lists of 69 and 55 films respectively. I appreciated their enthusiasm, but sadly had to let them know that only the first 25 films they listed were eligible. That said, this is a top 50 list, which means 113 films didn't make the cut. Almost all of them only appeared on one ballot, filling out the fringes. But seven movies received multiple votes and just didn't earn enough points. Going in order, they are Incredibles 2, that came in 57th overall, 10 Cloverfield Lane at 64, Tony Erdman at 71, Rogue One at 80, Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows at 87, Zero Dark Thirty at 143, and Get Out at number 153. All these films appeared on two ballots except for Zero Dark Thirty, which showed up on three of them. I was curious when organizing the list and pulling interesting data what the genres of this list look like. I started sorting each film into a genre. Then I got stuck. Is Lady Bird a comedy or a drama? Is Thor Ragnarok a comedy, action movie, or should superhero movies have their own genre? Spoiler alert. So, I broke it up into some subgenres like dramedy and superhero. It shouldn't come as any surprise that dramas were the overwhelming majority of picks, just like at the Oscars. A total of 13 dramas made the cut, followed up by five each of action films, animated flicks, dramedies, and foreign language films. There are films in French, Arabic, Spanish, Farsi, and Japanese that made up the list. There are three pure comedies, two thrillers, and one documentary. As nebulous of a genre that is musical, that categorization takes up three slots as well, while sci-fi and fantasy had four entries. Superhero and Adventure also made the cut. Coming in at number 40 is Sicario from 2015, directed by Denis Villeneuve. After the release of Ensemble in 2010, I was hooked on Quebecois director Denis Villeneuve. He transitioned to English language filmmaking, and at first, I was skeptical. I'm normally a pretty good judge of movies based on their trailers. There's the odd occasion, usually with comedies, that has a good trailer, but is cut from a bad movie. But rarely, if ever, have I seen a bad trailer, and the movie actually was good. First came Prisoners. The trailer sucked, but the film was terrifyingly good. Then came Sicario, a trailer that made the movie seem like a pompous, fake, woke movie about the struggles of the drug war on the U.S.-Mexico border. Against my better judgment, I watched the movie, and I swore off judging Villeneuve's movies before seeing them. From the heart, palpitating SUV border crossing fight, to a nightmare-inducing opening sequence discovering victims in the trap house, this movie had everything. Its politics were anything but preachy. Instead, the further into the movie goes, the muddier the waters get as we explore the dark and perverted depths that the drug war actually takes place in. The movie represented a peak for Emily Blunt, who was coming off another strong action flick in Edge of Tomorrow, and solidified her as a star. It would be really cool to see these characters in a sequel, but it looks like they never will do one. Oh well. Coming in at number 39 is A Separation, from 2011, directed by Asghar Farhadi. Back in 2011, my knowledge of Iranian cinema was minuscule at best. I'm sure I had heard the name Abbas Kiarostami, but I certainly hadn't seen any of his films. 
So, when trying to watch the Oscar-nominated foreign language films of 2012, I had no reference point of Asghar Farhadi and his work. What followed was an examination of what life meant in modern Iran and what it looks like. A couple whose feelings for each other may have faded, but still clearly care about one another, want to get divorced as the mother wants to take their teenage daughter out of Iran and live in a more peaceful country. Her husband, who takes care of his sick father, doesn't want to leave. The film explores the place of religion on society, women's roles, and how do people that live in a part of the world where rights are tediously upheld. As the movie unfolds, we get to see layers of real human beings and the struggles they go through just to live a normal life. Farhadi won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar and followed it up by winning the award again in 2017 for The Salesman, his take on how artists put on a play like Death of a Salesman in an oppressive country. If you haven't seen his films, he is an international director to keep an eye on. He's worked outside of Farsi cinema by directing movies in French and Spanish as well. In number 38 is Inside Lewin Davis from 2013, directed by the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers have so many masterpieces, it's weird to think they have a second-tier ones. Like, most big directors will be remembered for a small handful of all-time great films. The Coens have Fargo, No Country for Old Men, The Big Lebowski, and Miller's Crossing. That alone is fantastic. And then you need to add an addendum that you can't forget Burn After Reading, Raising Arizona, Old Brother Where Art Thou, and of course, Inside Lewin Davis, the duo's quasi-Dave Van Ronk biopic that featured the breakthrough performance of Oscar Isaac. Isaac plays such a sad sack as both someone you are rooting for to succeed, but at the same time such a jerk you can't help but laugh at his misery. That's the beauty of a Coen Brothers movie. Your sympathies change scene to scene as we watch such a hapless character meander through life. The movie has some weird moments, notably with John Goodman and Adam Driver doing his best to steal the damn film. It all comes to a climax when we see the unbelievable talent Lewin has during his audition scene with the last executive who may give his career, they'll rip your heart out. This movie got completely disrespected by the Oscars and not only should have been up for Best Picture, Director, and Actor, but Carrie Mulligan for Supporting Actress, Original Score, and Costumes. Coming in at number 37 is Captain America The Winter Soldier from 2014, directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. We are now going to hear from the second half of the Basement Binge hosts. This is Harrison going to talk about this movie. Hi, I'm Harrison, and I'm from the Basement Binge. And the first movie that I'm going to talk about is Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and what made it so great. I just remember the first time seeing this movie being so impressed with what it was and all that went into it because you have the Russo brothers coming to movie filmmaking for the first time from TV and also directing their first MCU movie and you take this iconic and established character of Captain America to such a new place and a new development. So you have this wonderful period piece in World War II that you just took this propaganda character, Hitler punching character, and you made it into a great justice-loving and, and genuinely good person. And you drop him in the Avengers, and he suddenly he's the leader of this team, and then you've got to somehow move this character on from the 1940s. And so you just get the Rooster Brothers to come in and take the character and completely blow your socks off with the physiological and sociological struggle that he goes through in this, this political war thriller. And then while you're trying to pick up your socks after that, you're going to get your underpants blown off with the complete emotional complexity and struggle that this poor soldier and good man Steve Rogers has to endure. And then just in case that's not enough, they're going to blow your mind with the great action and, and great filmmaking and iconography in this film. 
it's just such an impressive and timely film to enjoy over and over and over again. Coming in at number 36 is Bridesmaids from 2011, directed by Paul Feig. Over to you, Stephanie. Bridesmaids is the female buddy comedy movie that I think all us ladies wanted. The traditional female comedy is that of a romantic comedy. It's the female lead who is searching for her love, for her happy ending, and that's just not the case all the time. So I think it was a great uh, introduction and an important submission into the movie universe that was much needed. It shows that, you know, females have other relationships that drive their life, and I think it was important to show the different ways that we cope with new and old friendships as well as our own self-worth, whether it be based off success in the workplace or success within your friendships. So I think showcasing that diverse and complicated relationship between Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph's characters was really important and something that we hadn't really seen before in a female-driven comedy. So I was very happy to see that. And of course, it's obviously fun to watch. I think it's a hilarious take at wedding drama and I think that's the importance of it it pokes fun at the traditional female situation and stereotypes that we're used to seeing in the movies and from day to day it's just a great point of view and a amazing movie to watch and I think it's not just for for women to watch too I think men get it it's funny it's for everyone it's finally a movie that has its own place in the movie universe Coming in at number 35 is The Shape of Water from 2017, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Introducing this movie is going to be Harper Thompson, one of the hosts of Hawkeye's Pod, a podcast dedicated to Ethan Hawke. Hi, my name is Harper and I'm the co-host of Hawkeye's, an Ethan Hawke podcast. The first movie I'm going to be talking about is The Shape of Water. It's not often that I walk out of a movie thinking, damn... Now that's a movie. That's a movie that did all of the parts of a movie exactly right. But that's how I felt about The Shape of Water. Everything about it totally blew me away. The performances, the score, the cinematography, the art direction, and for that reason I think it belongs on this list. Coming in at number 34 is Wreck-It Ralph from 2012, directed by Rich Moore. This is being introduced by Sammy Felchenfeld, one of the most frequent guest hosts on the show that you all know and love. Hey, this is Sammy Felschenfeld, and the first movie I'm going to talk about is Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph was probably the best video game movie ever made. I think that at the time it was coming in when Disney Animation was still sort of starting its new resurgence, and it really kind of hit a, hit a spot for everybody that it was enjoyable by kids and adults, uh, a lot of great references, um, a lot of stuff that would remind people of the 80s and 90s from the video game era. All around a great movie, um, definitely one of my favorite animated movies, and really a showcase that Disney animation could also make the types of movies that Pixar animation could as well. Coming in at number 33 is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, from 2017, directed by Martin McDonough. Introducing this movie is going to be Dasha Paragadova, a one-time guest host way back in the day who is very good at beating me at Oscar predictions. So 
Take it away, Dasha. Hi, my name is Dasha Kargadova, and I'm excited to be back on the ContraZoom podcast. I am going to talk about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was one of my picks for top 50, I think, films of the last decade. Uh, The reason why I love three billboards is because I think in the same way that film has this ability to take, um, you know, what could be this huge medium with big ideas, big stories, huge worlds, or a small town, one discrete situation, but turn it into a giant world of its own. I think it's kind of cool that that's reflected in the film where, you know, this female character, this character takes a billboard and basically shines light on a story that had the potential to become anything. And had she not been fighting for it, it could have been very, very different. Coming in at number 32 is The Favorite from 2018, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Stephanie is going to do the honors. The Favorite is all about witty writing. It has such a brilliant heightened dialogue. It's sharp. It's smart. And the way that the lines are given from Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman are just everything. Their characters are so fleshed out and the emotions and the tension that they bring, the development that takes place throughout the film really brings you into this world. And it's just so smart and weird, which is the only way that you would have a Yargos Lanthimos movie, the only way I would anyway. And it's so silly at times that I think it's needed throughout this like serious, high tension film. But also, it's again, another version of this like female driven film that holds its own. It's strong. It's independent. These ladies all have their own take, their own point of views, their own reasons for taking up the space that I think it makes it such a strong submission uh, into movies. So I'm so happy that it's here. And just watching this movie, it might be a slow burner. I definitely watched it and took it away and really like let it resonate with me and, and think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, this movie was so good. So this is why I definitely have it on my list. Coming in at number 31 is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino has always been a home run director for me, and while I prefer his post-Kill Bill films to his early work, I love it all. Then The Hateful Eight came out, and I was pretty disappointed. Maybe his critics were right in that he was losing his touch. Whatever it was, he came roaring back with Hollywood, a film that features subject matter that is close to his heart. Reteaming with Leonardo DiCaprio to play an aging, out-of-touch actor has him putting in work with plenty of great character touches, like a slight stutter when he isn't acting and the near-constant paranoia all artists have. Leo shares the running time with Brad Pitt, who looks like a golden god here, and who seems to be the best guy to have working for you, while also bubbling with violence underneath the surface. The film's standout moments are when Leo is acting on set, and Tarantino makes it look like magic or, as the rest of the world knows it, Hollywood magic. The movie serves as a farewell to Luke Perry, who died unexpectedly this year, a few months before the film was released. The movie enshrines him as a real-life inspiration for Leo's Rick Dalton that won't be soon forgotten. Over a 10-year period, it seems to reason that we could expect five movies per year to make the cut, 
Obviously, there will be some recency bias and anti-bias thrown into the mix. The survey was sent out to everyone at the start of the fall, and due to the nature of film releases, most great films of 2019 hadn't come out yet. And who is ready to anoint a film that came out only a few months prior as one of the decade's best without letting it sit and stew for a while? As such, only two 2019 movies made the cut, which would have been the lowest except that tied with 2011, with both films coming near the bottom of the list. Looking at my massive list of 155 films, it's not like a ton of great films came out that year. Sure, there was Tree of Life, Midnight in Paris, and Moneyball, but I can see why they didn't make the cut. On the other hand, 2017 absolutely dominated, with 13 movies making the cut. The year is close enough that is easily remembered, but far enough behind us that our brains have digested what we saw and are able to not make hot takes that will be regretted later on. Pointing out films that missed the cut is basically nitpicking at this point. At the end of the next episode, I will highlight some films that didn't appear on anyone else's ballots but my own, so I won't rehash it all here. If we are to expect that five movies, give or take, would come from each year, you would not be shocked to see that six of the years were all plus or minus one film away from five. 2012 is the only other outlier with three films on this list, all of which appeared in the bottom 25. And now, back to the list with our final five. Coming in at number 29 is A Star is Born from 2018, directed by Bradley Cooper. Sebastian Hines, please do the honor. A Star is Born is made up of a lot of extraordinary components, and leading the pack is Lady Gaga's performance. In spite of her experience as a performer in life, she manages to make us feel like this is the first time she's ever performed for a massive crowd. This is a movie that could have been schlocked, but it felt very connected, very deep, and very meaningful for all the actors involved. And it explores interpersonal complexities inside stardom in a done way, but in what feels like a new and exciting way. Excellent direction by Bradley Cooper. Some scenes even sounded like improv, which I really appreciated, including the bathtub fight between uh, Gaga and Cooper when she imitates Bradley Cooper's voice in the movie. Love that. Coming in at number 28 is Spotlight from 2015, directed by Tom McCarthy. In the same vein of All the President's Men, Spotlight is a movie about doing actual journalism. There are only a few real showy scenes, mostly from Mark Ruffalo, which is how he scored a Best Supporting Actor nomination. But in a time when actual, real investigative journalism is dying every day due to clickbait sensationalism, fake news media, and worst of all, the news preferring to be first rather than right. This slow burn of a movie is where a team of reporters from the Boston Globe uncover a massive sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, and the subsequent cover-up that had a paper trail decades long is a nail-biter of a film. The ensemble cast all pull their weight with terrific performances from Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams, who both got Oscar nominations, along with Michael Keaton, Liev Schreiber, John Slattery, Stanley Tucci, and more. This film deservedly won Best Picture and is worth a rewatch on how prescient it still is today. Coming in at number 26 is Whiplash from 2014, directed by Damien Chazelle. Once again, Callum McNabb. Pacing. It's usually only discussed when films go on and on and on and either send you to sleep or invest you in the entire world and life of its characters. But it's rarely mentioned 
when a film gets in and gets out, doing what it needs to do with no fat on the bones. Whiplash, Damien Chazelle's breakout movie, has none of that fat. Sure, you could mention that it looks great. Teller and Simmons are cast perfectly. The music is tremendous. The editing is intoxicating. Yada, yada, yada. What really matters about Whiplash is that it grabs you by the throat, rams you through one hour and 40 minutes of thrills and drama, and then leaves you at the side of the road wanting more. Every time I watch this movie, I'm convinced that it's barely 35 minutes long. It just moves. And I wouldn't have it any other way. For the last film that we are going to talk about today in number 26 is Beasts of the Southern Wild from 2012, directed by Ben Zeitlin. This is being introduced by Harper Thompson. Take it away. My second movie on the list is Beasts of the Southern Wild. This was just a gorgeous and totally unexpected movie for me. It's beautifully shot, and the way that Ben Zeitlin captured the situation through the lens of childhood is truly incredible. It's a perspective that we don't get to see very often, that of a child, and additionally, in this particular region of the South that we don't see in film very often, or at all. Also, we can't talk about this movie without mentioning the outstanding performance by Kevonjane Wallace as the main character, Hush Puppy. It's so devastating and beautiful, especially from a six-year-old. Lastly, I want to thank everyone that took part in this survey and highlight their expertise. I have grouped the delegates into three categories. Guests of ContraZoom Pod, people that host their own shows, and industry professionals. First up are those that have been on the show. I joke that Stephanie Pryor and Sammy Felchenfeld are my Ross Matthews and Carson Kressley of the show. They are almost never on at the same time and are my go-to rocks if I ever need a knowledgeable guest. Sammy has graced the show with his voice 17 times, making him the most frequent co-host since the OG Andreas Babiolakis back in the day. Thankfully, he didn't manage to shoehorn a Suicide Squad joke this time around. Stephanie has made 14 appearances, usually showing up in the make-remake episodes and the Oscar Best Picture decade-by-decade rankings, sharing my passion for classic films. Curtis Sindri, who's the boss man over at Aesthetic Magazine that graciously presents ContraZoom Pod, appeared on the debut episode of the show's reincarnation, our summer 2019 movie preview. Dasha Paragadova has shown up twice in my classic Oscar predictions episodes, usually as she does her best to humiliate me with her superior picks. Lastly, there's Gemma Mastriani, who made her first guesting on the old boy Make Remake. In the podcasting side of things, I'm honored to feature the voices of Callum McNabb, co-host of Scare Traducing, who you may remember from this year's Halloween Recommendations episode. He hosts a horror-themed show, in case you like your screams year-round. Harper Thompson, who's one half of the Hawkeye podcast that chronologically is reviewing every Ethan Hawke film, which, if my counting is accurate, only one Hawke film made our list. We have a double dose of The Basement Binge, with Cade and Harrison both submitting ballots. The two of them, along with their friend Kelton, review the most binge-worthy movies. Carly Smale also sent in her picks, and she hosts the teen movie-themed show Teenage Dirtbags. Lastly, I broke out my Rolodex and managed to snag some industry professionals. First up is Sebastian Hines, who was interviewed on ContraZoom way back on Episode 3 in 2015, discussing his play Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. If you have been to Stratford at all in the last several years, chances are you have seen him on stage. Colin Mercer is a showrunner, actor, and writer who currently stars alongside actor Tal Gottfried 
on the online sketch comedy Game Time, which is a must-watch. I recently just interviewed Colin Mercer in the last episode. Lastly, actor Maxine Grossman can be seen on screen and in theaters, and she also submitted a ballot. Thanks to everyone who helped out by appearing in these episodes and for sending in their picks. As always, ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine, with music provided by Eric and Kevin Smale. You can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at ContraZoomPod. And send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Let me know what your favorite films of the decade were, and I'll feature your responses on a future episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and stay tuned as the top 25 films of the decade will be revealed on December 31st. (laughs) 